Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Arya Bramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. <laughs> hey everybody, it's so happy to see you guys. Wonderful to see you. William, I don't think I've ever seen you actually on the Zoom with us from Malawi. I'm just thrilled to see you. It's really, really great to have you here. Oh, it's wonderful. I'm just happy that we're here together. The world is not an easy place. And then I remember, wait a minute, but there's the Land of Israel Fellowship. There is still hope. <laughs> we still might win. <laughs> it's like the odds are stacked against us, but something's going on here. And so I just, I literally, I look forward uh, and prepare for our fellowship, for our gathering um, literally all week. And a member from the fellowship, Brandon, he's here with us now from Colorado, uh, from Colorado, sent me a video WhatsApp this week, and it just stayed with me all week. And, you know, we've been together learning, praying, building, and developing this fellowship for more than a year now. And just hearing his perspective and his experience just really touched my heart. And he pointed out that there is nothing like our fellowship anywhere else in the whole world. I mean, think about that. Here we are based out of the land of Israel, based in the mountains of Judea, hundreds of members that represent families from over 40 countries all around the world, from Malawi to New Zealand, to South Africa, to all across Europe. It's like, and so many people all together in one fellowship. There are more perspectives, cultures, religious backgrounds, nationalities, educations, languages, and somehow we hold a sacred space and everyone feels at home here. Somehow the land of Israel provides a space in a home for all nations, like an actual house of prayer for all nations. I mean, who could have imagined <laughs> that we could build such a community and be given the gift to speak in a language that touches everyone's hearts and prayers that bring us all together? It's just beautiful. And, you know, uh, imagine one of the ways that evil expresses itself uh, today is like the cancel culture. Um, that's not new. I mean, the Tower of Babel was defined as a people who all spoke one language. <laughs> that's how it's defined. There's like no language other than this one. And Nimrod the king wanted no other opinions, no diversity. And it's not that your opinion is wrong. It's just, it doesn't even deserve to exist. I was just going to cancel you. And so today they cancel you and the Nazis and the communists, they did the same thing. It's like, it's just, it's an expression of evil in the world. And in a world that is trying to cancel everything that's different than them. And even in a society that's more open, they can hardly talk about relatively like, I don't know, innocuous topics like wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. People can't even talk about that anymore. And here we are, our fellowship dedicated to the higher principle of just unconditional love. Try to love God, try to love our fellow, no judgment, unconditional love. Whoever wants to come Come and join us as we try to go closer to God, closer to ourselves, how as we try to become better, just to bring a little bit more light in the world, help people become better, help ourselves become better and closer to who we were created to be. And so just how amazing it is to really recognize that we're a part of something that is unique in the whole world. There's nothing like it. It's just like, wow, we're so fortunate. And so we should take this once in a lifetime opportunity that generations before us couldn't have imagined in their wildest dreams that somehow we could all connect at the same time all around the globe. And um, I don't know, we should, uh, obviously we should uh, take our time and, you know, and pray together <laughs> to build our fellowship in a way that we can, we can pray together. So let's just take a moment and recognize how lucky we are. Hashem, master of the universe, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for granting us 
nachen, to find grace in people's eyes. And more and more people keep joining this move. May it only grow and make your name great. Thank you for this time to help us redirect our lives and refocus on what matters most. Thank you for blessing our gatherings and for blessing our work here in the land of Israel. We're preparing ourselves for a big day. We all feel it's coming. We don't know when, but it feels like it's coming sooner than we most, most of us are ready for. <laughs> so guide us, prepare us. We're here waiting for the calling. Thank you for allowing us to come together in this fellowship to chart this path in the world. And thank you for guiding us along this way. Bless the families of this fellowship. Bless their loved ones, guide them and protect them. Bless them as they're a blessing to us, a blessing to this land and a blessing to Israel. Thank you. Amen. All right, my friends. So I feel like, you know, we all come here together because we want to talk about how to be in the world, how to draw closer to our creator, how to find meaning in our times from the words of our prophets who brought down the moral code for living. And everyone in this fellowship are here to tune in, to learn about the ways of the ancient believers. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, I love this verse. Thus said the Lord, stand in the paths and see and ask about the ancient ways, which is the good way, and walk therein, and you shall find tranquility for your souls. And so look what Jeremiah says here, which is the good way. And I think that's one of the spiritual magnets that's brought this miraculous group together, which is the good way. You know, we looked at the ways of the ancients, to the prophets to find the answer, which is the good way. And, you know, I love learning philosophy and psychology and neurology, whatever I can to make me better, to make my life better. And there's so many teachers out there. There's ex-Navy SEALs that can teach you about discipline and leadership, great advice. And if your life is getting out of hand and the chaos is overwhelming you, so Jordan Peterson's, you know, clean your room, start creating order in your life, start small, just start with your room eat this way, diet that way, fast this way, exercise that way, this life hack, that life hack. And I really, I love all that stuff, but there's something that's really missing today, which is the good way. That's a question that not many coaches, not many psychologists deal with. They talk about how to make our lives better, but the prophets are telling us, no, 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 stand in the paths and ask this question, which is the good way? And so, you know, my oldest son, Lavi, you know, he's blessed with an amazing mind. And right now he's 17 and he's working as hard as I've ever seen a 17 year old work to really maximize his academic potential in school and outside of school. I mean, he's just got to heal his brain and he wants to get into one of Israel's top intelligence units in the IDF, you know, the ones that are like hacking Iran's nuclear facility and the ones responsible for developing the cutting edge technologies, you know, that are just continuously giving Israel the upper hand. And, you know, I'm just, I'm very proud of him for working so hard and developing the work ethic that he has. And I think that kind of, you know, work that'll serve him well for the rest of his life. But I was talking to my kids over Shabbat um, and my heart was really directed at Lavi, even though I was talking to the whole Shabbat table. And I told them, listen, you know, it's not what they get in life or even what they achieve, but who they become 
that's eternal. I'm going to say that one more time. It's not what you get or even what you achieve, but who you become that's eternal. Everything can be taken away from you except the person you become, your inner strength, your character. No one can take that away from you. I mean, that's what the meditation on the world to come is really all about. You can't take anything with you to the grave. No awards, no report card, no buildings you've built, no companies you've made, no stuff that you've bought. The only thing coming with you to the next world is you. That's the only thing that's really eternal. Who you become is what is. And when hard times come, when judgment day hits and judgment day will hit, the flood is going to come. It hits everyone and you never know when it's going to come. The flood always comes. And the best arc we can build, the best strategy and tactic is to build yourself into the person that everyone will rely on. To be the strongest man or woman in the room. When the hard times come, everyone around you is going to need you. And the stronger, the more faithful, the more calm, the more loving, the smarter, the better, the better you build yourself, the better it will be for you and for the world around you. And, you know, I just pray that these sessions, they strengthen everyone here and they make them redirect their lives to not get lost in all of the nourishkeit, all of like the stupidity around us. We get so lost. I get so lost and all of the little things that truly don't matter and to really bring us back to focus and start our week off strong. And so with that introduction, we're going to do something a little different, this fellowship. It's going to be fun. I've gotten a bunch of questions and I feel that it would be best if I answer them here to everyone for them to hear, because I think that there's value here. And um, when I'm done answering these questions, we're going to dive deep into the learning. I don't know what Ari has to say today, but Tehillah's teaching is literally out of this world. It's just spectacular. So first, what I want to do is I want to answer some of your questions, because they're really important, and I haven't had the chance to answer all of them. And this is a really great forum, because I think people will find value in the answers to these questions. So. The first question comes from Lucy from the United States. She said, can you please tell us what a day in your life on the Aru goat farm looks like? And, you know, the fellowship isn't just about learning theology and philosophy and Torah. It's also about we're doing something in the land. And it's what does life look like? And so here's the simple answer. There is no answer. <laughs> Every day is a new adventure. Uh, there's so many balls in the air. And so much to do. And now that Corona is finished, groups are coming back to the farm now. Yeshivas and seminaries are starting to visit again. And you never know what might happen. But with that said, one of my mantras that I live by is a quote by Abraham Joshua Heschel. I've said it, I can't know how many times on this fellowship. Remember, above all else, build your life as it were a work of art. And you know, that verse has a lot of meanings if you really think about it. But one of the most important ideas here is that we are the artists of our lives. We're the architects of our days. We are the authors of our lives, and our goal is to make our life a masterpiece. But how do we do that? The answer is one stroke at a time or one day at a time. So I have a structure that I build my day around. Does it always work? Does it always manifest that way? No. But it serves as the default. This is what's going to happen. I might get pulled into three thousand different directions, but this is the ideal day. And if I can pull it off, those are my best days. And everyone needs to know um, what their masterpiece day looks like. I mean, if you got up when you wanted to, 
and you did everything you needed to in the times that you wanted to. And then you had time to do the things you needed to do in the times of uh, things you wanted to do. What would that day look like if you were the architect and you, you know, you need an architectural plan. And if you want to build your life beautifully, what is your day, your best day look like? If you don't have that now, or if you've never done that before, that's homework for this coming week in your fellowship journal. Take a page and just dream what an ideal day would look like. So I just give you an example of like, here's the outline of what my day looks like. Can we get it up on the screen? Perfect. So I break my mornings um, into two blocks of time. I call them AM1 and AM2. AM1, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning. Am I able to do that every day? No. <laughs> do I try to do that every day? Yes. I would say in the last couple of weeks, I'm batting a solid 80%. I don't wake up at 4.30 in the morning on Shabbat. I'm not counting Shabbat. Um, I know that if Tila would hear, she would be like, no, no, it's 70% because she's just a hard grader. She's just tough. But since she's not on camera now, I'm going to tell you, I think it's more like 80%. And I'm pretty happy with 80%. But sometimes, you know, one of our kids gets sick and decides to spend the night in our bedroom and decides to just spend the night coughing up my nose the whole night. And when that happens, AM1 is just not going to happen. So AM1 is dedicated to a deep focused work. What does that mean? It means I'm working on the fellowship. It means that I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm thinking, I'm planning, uh, but mostly writing. In AM1, um, just as the sun comes up, I take time for my morning prayers. And out of the two and a half hour block of time that I'm reading and writing and researching, uh, my morning prayers are about 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes if I'm really into it, but more like 10 to 15 minutes. In Shacharit, the morning prayer is the emotional, spiritual domino that kicks off my day. That is the beginning of the process. And in my book, The Judean Art of Waking Up, I say it like this, if you win the morning, you win the day. If you change your days, you change your life. And how do you build your life into a masterpiece, into a work of art? It starts in the morning and it literally happens every day. So for the people in the fellowship here, if you wanna know more about the morning meditations and the prayers, uh, in the Judean tradition, based mostly on the book of Psalms. Every member of the fellowship can download the book for free. If you haven't downloaded it yet, or you lost the link, or something happened, or you want to download it again, just email fellowship at thelandofisrael.com, and Tabitha or I will be sure to send it to you. Um, and the, it has the Hebrew prayer music that goes with it uh, that we produced. Um, and so that's just a great way to start off your morning. And so um, for members of the fellowship, it's free. It's a short book. It's it's absolutely worth your time. There's no fluff. I wasn't trying to write a book or publish it, so I didn't need to fill it with any kind of extra fluff, no extra pages. Each paragraph is thoughtful and meaningful. It's short. You could read it in one sitting, and I really think that it's really deep insights into prayer, and so that's AM1, and after AM1, my brain needs a break. Each person has about their, their own capacity for how they can um, sit and have intense focused work. Mine is about two and a half to three hours. After that, I just need a break. And for me, that works out really well because that's when I take my children to school. I wake them up, I give them breakfast, and that's a part of my morning schedule from seven until eight o'clock. Um, that's my kid family schedule time. And so we have family breakfast, which is more like a military operation, getting five kids out in time for school uh, at a bus stop, three mountaintops over. Tehila runs a tight ship and I'm in charge of keeping the time. So it literally sounds like something in the army, 10 minutes. 
five minutes, three minutes. And you know, that's the way we do it here in the Arbor Goat Farm. And we get them out and I'm usually back by about uh, eight o'clock in the morning. And then I start AM two. But by then the sun is up, my phone is on and it's already much harder for me to focus. So the first thing I do in AM two is I exercise. And I've added a new practice now after my workout is silence. I've been doing that now for about five months. I just sit with my journal and I sit in silence for about 10 or 20 minutes. And when a thought arises in my mind and I want to capture it, I just jot it down on my journal and then I go back to being in silence. And sometimes the thoughts are, oh, don't forget to fix the faucet in the kitchen, which is kind of a ridiculous thought. But if I just, okay, really don't forget that, write that down. And sometimes the thought is, oh, that's the meaning of ruthless, a person that has no ruth in them, no kindness and compassion. And there's like an epiphany that sort of strikes me. And then I'll write that down. But for the most time, I'm just sitting in silence and I find that to be really, really helpful for me. It's just like, um, it's a study hall of silence. And um, it, you know, if there's a thought that I don't want to lose, I jot it down and I get to keep it. It's, you know, if sometimes if it's a dumb thought, which most of my thoughts are, I just kind of let it arise and then I let it go. And I just keep on listening to my, listening to the silence. Um, and then before I go to work, after my exercise in silence, I always immerse myself in freezing cold water, which brings me to another question that I had, which is, Jeremy, you immerse yourself in freezing cold water every day? <laughs> the answer to that is yes. Um, now that the sun is out and the natural waters here are no longer cold, now they're more like refreshing, um, what do I do? Um, that was a question from Shumi, a member of our fellowship in Israel. Um, so the, uh, the benefits that I found swimming in the freezing water during the winter here were so incredible for me in my life that when the sun came up and I wasn't, uh, I just wasn't about to stop. So I started with cold showers and uh, that didn't really do it for me. And so they're good, but they weren't as powerful as like the full immersion. So let me just show you uh, what I do now every morning. I made this short video for you guys so you can see it. Hey guys, so I was asked about the cold exposure therapy that I spoke about a few months ago. And now that the weather is so beautiful and sunny in the mountains of Judea in the summertime, um, what do I do now to experience the cold and all of the benefits of it? So I just wanted to show you what I've been doing for the last, I guess, three months or so. So come check this out. This is our man cave. This is my office down here below. And so, um, when the sun started uh, heating up the natural water around here, um, I started taking cold showers, but then I realized that the cold showers, although they were quite great, the water up here on the mountain just doesn't get that cold because the pipes are not that deep underground and the water just, it's cold, but it's not, it's not cold enough. So what I did was, um, do you see this? What looks like a table is actually, um, a lying freezer. And so I got this freezer online here in Israel. I think the price was probably about $300. And so what I did was I lined the freezer here to make it waterproof, filled it with water. And now, yeah, that's, that's cold. <laughs> and so if you see right here, we call this a Shabbos clock. Well, normal people call it a timer. And it goes on at about um, one o'clock in the morning. It goes off at six o'clock in the morning and then the water is just right below freezing or right above freezing. And so every morning after my just time in silence and after my exercise, I get into the freezer. So I have my trusted camera woman here, Tahila, and I'll just show you what that looks like. So I got my stopwatch here. Do I want to do this? Who wants to go into freezing cold water? But then every day I look at something that I don't want to do and then I choose to do what I know is right. And so... Um, I go in for two and a half minutes one way, 
and then the last 30 seconds, full immersion, and um, it's cold. So here we go. See, the water is so cold that I can't put my toes fully in the water. It's kind of like floating in the Dead Sea if the Dead Sea were in the North Pole. So I just now stay here in the cold. My body is in total um, panic mode now. It's like, oh my gosh, your body's in freezing cold water. Quickly help this idiot get out of the water. And now it's sending all of the energy, the hormones, the endorphins. What are they called? The cold shock proteins? Is that what they're called to you? Cold shock proteins. And they're sending it all over everywhere now to help me get out of this freezing cold water. And I just kind of absorb it. And the world is a painful place and I'm just kind of like accepting that as the reality. Accepting it, being in it. <sighs> and so what we'll do is we'll fast forward this just a little bit so you don't have to sit here watching me suffer. Oh, hey, Jeremy, I forgot to press record. You're gonna have to do this all over again. <laughs> I'm, I'm an intense guy. I think that's pretty clear now. <laughs> I'm an intense guy. It was hysterical watching your guys' faces at that. That was so fun for me. <laughs> this is such an entertaining fellowship. Where can you find a fellowship that is this entertaining? <laughs> and so just, but I want you to know that getting into the freezing water, it helps me, it helps keep my intensity alive. And it, <laughs> it didn't, it doesn't feel good while I'm doing it, but afterwards it feels so amazing. I wouldn't do it if it didn't feel so good afterwards. It's like a happy pill in an energy drink without any bad side effects, totally natural. And it's also like the, it is the way of our ancients to, uh, to immerse in water every morning for purification and that stuff purifies you. I think that that's clear right now. But, um, you know, I used to get sick every winter and it's, it, it seems to charge up your immune system. And that's in, just in the discipline of the practice of self-authority, just every morning, the self-control, it's just really beneficial. And so every morning I teach my body and I remind myself, who's the Balhabite? Who's the master of this house here? Who's the master of the domain called my life? It's not my fears because I'm scared to go in the water every single morning. And it's not my body there. It's not the master. It definitely doesn't want to go in that discomfort. It's my higher self that wants me to have my best day. So I set that straight in the lower desires. They have to get in line with the higher desire. And that's how I start off my day. And it's just a qualitatively better day. 
And I feel like I just have a moral responsibility to bring my A game to life as much as I possibly can. And so that's the answer about my cold plunge. <laughs> okay, so that's AM2. And then I start off AM2. So let's get back to the schedule. AM2 is like, okay, so nine o'clock to 9.30. I'm doing my, you know, whatever, um, until about 12 to 12.30. That's AM2. And that's just another block of time for deep work where I go down into my man cave, which is my office or my study. It looks like a cave. I feel like David had a cave. I wanted my own cave. So there's no real windows there. There's like little windows, but they don't really go to anywhere. It's quiet. My kids don't come there. And so I just go there and that's where I'm able to finally get into, there's a great book called Deep Work by Kyle Newport. And I just quickly grabbed this line off of the internet from the book. And it says, deep work is the ability to focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. It's a skill that allows you to quickly master complicated information and produce better results in less time. And so there it is. You don't have to buy the book. I just gave it to you. The idea is that in today's world with smartphones and emails and push notifications and WhatsApps, and it's almost impossible to get into a deep state of concentration and focus. We're like pushed and pulled and distracted. And it takes much more of, from us to get into a normal state of mind that we can actually get deep work done. And so in a nutshell, that is the book, cut out big chunks of time, work, don't stop until the block of time is done and you can't have any phones and any distractions. And so that's AM2. Most of the time, I'm still working on the mission of the fellowship, either continuing to write, to plan, to work what needs to be done for the farm, for any other new farms. I'm going on a speaking tour this summer. I have to work out all the details there. That's the time for focused, detailed work. Can we get the schedule back up? Then I break for lunch. So I don't really eat breakfast. I just have a cup of coffee in the morning. I try not to put too much sugar. And then I try to only eat in the afternoon. And by this time, my brain and body need a rest after those two blocks of time. So I'll go on a hike in the mountains. I'll go on a walk with Tahila. I'll groom Hector, my horse. Maybe I'll take him out for a ride. I'll work in the garden. I'll go do something that some kind of contrast to my brain work that I've done. I let my brain sort of relax and recover um, from forcing it to focus so much. And then I just work with my body, try to let my mind chill out. And then after that, I have a PM1. And that's usually uh, meetings that I have uh, something I need to oversee at the farm. Someone needs some counseling. Maybe it's just a friend comes over. He needs to talk. A group might come to the farm to learn or to have some kind of experience. And that's another block of time called PM1. Then there's PM2. And PM2 is when I pick up my kids at the bus stop at about three o'clock. And then I'm with them or they're with me. And that can unfold in a whole different array of possibilities. Maybe there's a group and they're shadowing me and helping me out deal with that group. Maybe we're working together in the garden, cleaning up the house, doing their homework. That's about two and a half hours of a mix between family fun and family what needs to get done. And it's pretty flexible, but it's usually done together. And then there's 5.30, which is not flexible. And that is uh, family dinner time. 5.30 to about six or so, that's when we sort of start. Um, Tehila and I think that family dinner is very important. It's critical, it's good for the families to get all together, to talk about their days, to just spend time together and have a time where you're having dinner together as a family. And that uh, happens then. And then we put the little kids to bed, you know, brush their teeth, read them a story, uh, put them to bed. And then I have two big kids. And, you know, we usually make order out of the house, um, and then we hang. Hopefully we're learning something together. Maybe we'll play a game. If I can find something worthwhile, like a documentary, maybe we'll watch that together. Akiva and I just watched the story of how the Mossad found Adolf Eichmann. 
and brought him to trial in Israel for being the mastermind behind the final solution. That was really interesting. Um, I love movies and series that are based on true stories and history. Um, and then 8.30, I start my morning routine, try to get in bed by 9.30, 10. And um, that's about a day in the life here. That's how it's structured. Does it always work out that way? Absolutely not. But I found that structuring my day in that way, especially AM1, that is the key. If you wake up before the sunrise, everything is different. And so that is the day of my life living here in the Aru Goat Farm. And when the days actually unfold in that order, they are my best days. I don't need any fancy vacations or thrilling experiences. Just let me wake up the dawn, live my best day, and I am as happy as can be. Okay, the next question. Can you please give us an update on the progress at the farm and the new farm we are building? And so I have some very exciting news. Um, we're now helping establish a new farm. So now this is number three. We have the Aru Goat Farm. We have the farm that you've seen to the right of us and now a third farm in Judea. While the world is spinning their hats and trying to figure things out, our fellowship is continuing to just settle the land, restore the land. We just keep on keeping on. And that is amazing because as we go more toward the land, we go more toward our destiny. That is so clear by all of the visions of the Bible. <laughs> and so this one is like nothing else. I mean, we've developed land around the Arugot farm, the mountains overlooking the desert. We call it the edge of the Judean frontier. This new place is deep into the wilderness. I mean, it's deep into the desert. Uh, it's heroic, it's dangerous, it's gorgeous. And we are just the luckiest fellowship in the world to take part in reclaiming the Judean desert and restoring the Judean desert and making it beautiful. So I made this video for you this Friday because it's the closest thing I can do to bringing you here. And so sit back and relax and enjoy this adventure as our fellowship goes deep into the Judean desert and check out what we're building. Hey friends, it's Friday morning. I'm leaving the farm right now. We are on our way to check out the newest outpost that we're helping establish now. And you know, the Arugot farm is at the edge of the Judean frontier. This place is deep in it. You know, on one hand, I'm ecstatic, thrilled, proud that we have a hand in settling the land of Israel, but there was a time where Ari and I were the last Jews in Judea, the cutting edge. <laughs> and now we've pushed people ahead of us. And so now we're, we're no longer holding the line. We're not the tip of the spear. We're sort of at the, the edge of the spear, but there's a new tip. But I'm excited because our fellowship has a hand in restoring, reclaiming, and settling the heart of the land of Israel. So I'm about to leave our, our property here and go into the little caravan community next to us. And uh, I'm going to stop along the way just to show you how deep into the wilderness we're going. So this should be a fun morning. All right, hey guys. So I just... I just pulled over my car here just to try to show you guys the proportions. Right behind me here, it's already a little bit hard to see it, but right there, that's our house of prayer. So that's the edge of our farm. Behind me here, that's already the Dead Sea. You can see that. That's quite blue now. You can see that. That's like undeniable. All right. Now, the road from our farm here down this way, we're now going south into the desert right? Because the Dead Sea is this way, our farm is that way, we're going south. If you look at the road here, the road here is 
I mean, it's supposed to be a two-lane road. You know, there's there are cars going both directions. But I, I, I don't think that these roads have been paved since 1948. And if you just keep going down this road, eventually it, it just turns into a dirt road. It just stops because we're just off into the Judean unknown. But um, that's what I'm talking about, the edge of the frontier. Now we're going into the frontier. All right, guys, so I've been driving for about 10 minutes now and I just wanted to stop and show you just the landscape here. I mean, the ground here, I mean, this just, it's just rocks, desert, like nothing can grow here. We are like in the desert now. Our farm is like at the edge of the desert in the mountains. This is already straight up desert and everything around me is just the Judean desert. When David is like walking through the desert saying, my soul is thirsty for you, dry like the desert. I mean, that's this is the desert that he was in. But if you see right behind me here, there's a little Bedouin encampment. And those guys are living without any electricity, without any water that I know of. And they just have made a life here in the middle of the desert. And our friend out here, he's trying to do the same thing in the, just the middle of the wilderness desert. Um, anyway, I just wanted to try to, just 10 minutes outside of our farm, and we are already now just deep into the desert. All right, so this is gonna be my last stop until we finally get to the place. But what I just wanted to show you here was, um, this is the luxurious road um, that we've been traveling on up until now. And now we're about to take um, a right turn off onto a dirt road to go pretty deep down into the desert. And our place is right up here at the, it's actually, it's a few mountaintops over. It's hard to see there on the camera, but, um, as if this road in the middle of the desert wasn't enough, we're getting off the road onto a dirt road and we're gonna drive now for about another three or four minutes and, um, and then we'll get to our final place. But um, next time you come to Israel, this will be an adventure to come and see the place that our fellowship um, is helping establish in the heart of the Judean desert, connecting Judea to the Dead Sea and soon to revive this desert. That's gonna happen. Okay, I didn't think that I was going to make one more stop, but I'm just, if you want wild camels in the desert, we got wild camels for you in the desert. I just wanted you to see how deep we are into the desert, that they're just camels walking around here. I must belong to some Bedouin, but just walking around here driving and then seeing wild camels walking around. Why not? All right, we finally got here. And um, what you see behind me, that's the spot. This is an old British army base. And the locals, we call it Rujumanaka which means a big pile of rocks. That's what this place is called. And if you see behind me here, it's literally one of the most beautiful views in Israel. I'm gonna get my ugly face out of there and just try to show you guys the actual view. Let me just get to the edge here. Check this out. All right, anyway, so this here is Rujumanaka. This now is the newest and deepest settlement in Judea. And um, I'm now meeting with the, um, the guy who's really taken charge and pushed this forward. Um, he was a general in an elite commando unit in the Israeli army. Um, his children are now grown and he's taken on a new mission for the Jewish people to settle the land and make this 
just dump of a place that's used for drug parties and was just a big garbage dump. That's really what it was used for up until now. And um, he's brought guys here and they're cleaning it up. And slowly but surely, we're going to make this place into something beautiful um, and invite the world to come and experience the Judean desert like no other place possible. So um, let me show you what's going on inside. Well, we're about to go in right now. And what you'll see here is that there's um, a relatively big police and army presence here right now for a Friday afternoon. And that's because there are warnings that there's going to be riots. So there's police, there's army. We've just now gone into the area here. And... Um, just this ruin is now slowly but surely actually being renovated. All right, so I told you that we're deep in the desert here. So the way that we have water in this outpost is there's a giant, uh, you can't see it, but there's about a 1,200 liter um, water canister on the roof that supplies all of the water here. And the electricity right now is from the generator in this room here. And so, the kitchen is up and running now, slowly but surely. Remember what it looks like now. The graffiti, the gross, the impossible. It's already so much cleaner here now, just after two weeks of work. And um, this is our mission, to make Israel beautiful again. So um, thank you all from the heart of the Judean desert. Last Shabbat was the first Shabbat that there was a Jewish presence here. and. The Palestinian Authority organized the demonstration against the people here, and there were only two Jews here at the time uh, with one gun. And so immediately uh, we were called out because we're their closest neighbors. So Ari and my partner Yossi, I wasn't there at the time, uh, quickly just got their M16s, jumped in the car, and drove here on Shabbat. And uh, Ari became famous <laughs> on the local Arab Facebook pages here as the defender of Judea. Check this out. And so now, uh, this Friday, um, Intel has it that they're planning now another demonstration and so the army is here uh, the police are here um, to protect the rights of the people to settle this land um, but the first thing that we did was establish a camera system here and that's really amazing so very few people can be here and there's cameras in order to protect the area around from any intrusion from any type of violation and so imagine that to take this garbage dump of a place and to make it beautiful for the world um, is a battle. But that is the battle for the land of Israel. And hopefully, as time goes, this place will become more and more beautiful and we'll have a hand in it. All right. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that virtual adventure to the front lines of the mission to settle and inherit the land of Israel. It's like every generation has its mission. It's like another chapter in the book. It's like last generation was to fight off the Nazis. Then it was to establish the state of Israel. Then it was to welcome millions of Jews in the great ingathering of the exiles. And now our generation, the last generation, is to inherit the land and completely pave the way for Mashiach toward complete redemption. It's like how awesome that our fellowship is doing it together. And um, as you've noticed, we don't run fundraising campaigns, at least not yet. We just... Um, ask people to spread the teachings and share about the fellowship with others. Share the teachings with, the, with their circles of influence. And we keep growing and getting stronger. And as we get stronger, you can quite literally see Israel is getting stronger. One farm at a time. It's just beautiful. 
And so now um, we're going to move on to part B of our fellowship. <laughs> and we're going to go deep now into the Torah. So I want to start with Ari and hear what he has to teach this week. He was away for Shabbat, so I didn't get a chance to learn with him this week. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. So take it away. Shalom, my friends. When you're tasked with a lofty mission in the world, which all of us are, it's critical not only to stay focused on that mission, but to make sure you know what the mission is. Because as they say, if you don't know where you're going, you're sure to get there. Now for me, Ari Abramowitz, on a personal level, the entire Torah in many ways revolves around this Parsha, Parshat Shlach, the Torah portion of Shlach. Because by looking deep within this Parsha, I believe we can understand not only the calling of our generation, but the mission of the Jewish people in the world since the beginning of time. As you'll hear about in this fellowship, the sages of Israel explain in many ways the roots of the pain and punishments and exiles that the Jewish people have experienced throughout history are found in this Parsha. And therefore, if viewed with the right eyes, the root to our healing and redemption are found in this Torah portion as well. So we all know the story of the spies, 12 of them, one from each tribe. They were actually very holy men, princes of their tribes. But 10 of them came back with an evil, fearful report of what happened in the promised land. Now, how did this happen? How could something like this happen? Well, to understand one of the great roots of their initial mistake, the initial misunderstanding of their mission, the English translation will not suffice. You need to look in the original Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, the word to spy, a spy is a meragel, to spy is leragel, which implies to see the nakedness of the land. A spy looks and sees the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the land. But that is not the word Moshe used when he sent them into the land. He used the word latur, which actually means very similar to the English sounding word to tour, to be tourists. And what do tourists do? They go and they see the richness of the land and the beauty of the land. A tourist goes to explore the goodness of the land. They were being sent to see the greatness of the land and to encourage the nation about its beauty and its plenty and its fruits and its resources. But that is not what they did. They went in with a different set of eyes altogether. So what I'd like to focus on right now was the initial dialogue uh, from the spies and from Caleb to the nation of Israel. So chapter 13, verses 27 through 31. Now here's the way it played out. And they reported to him and said, We arrived at the land to which you sent us, and indeed it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. But the people that dwells in the land is powerful. The cities are very greatly fortified. And we also saw there the offspring of the giant. Amalek dwells in the area of the south. The Hittite, the Jebusite, the Amorite dwell on the mountain. And the Canaanite dwells by the sea and on the banks of the Jordan. Verse 30. Caleb silenced the people towards Moshe and he said, We shall surely ascend and conquer it, for we can surely do it. But the men who were with him, verse 31, the men who had ascended said, we cannot ascend to that people for it is too strong for us. 
They went on to talk about how the land devours its inhabitants, Ochelet Yoshveha, and those living there are giants, and that not only did they feel like grasshoppers in their own eyes, but they felt like grasshoppers in the eyes of the inhabitants as well, which of course they couldn't know, and it was only projection. They couldn't possibly know that, but we also know from many numerous places, especially two weeks from now, that they were wrong, that people were terrified of them. Rather than going in to see the beauty and majesty of the land in order to encourage and motivate the nation to conquer it, they went in looking for threats and challenges. They went in looking for the strategic practicality of the conquest. Was this a practical war? Was it realistic? And all they saw was strength. And so they came back sharing the report of what their eyes saw. And what was the conclusion which they shared with the nation with which they demoralized an entire people, causing them to wander in the desert for 40 years? What was their advice? That the land was unconquerable. That it was destined to be a failed mission. Now, Rav Biederman shares a very beautiful teaching. What was Caleb's response to the very clearly thought out list of practical strategic reasons which the spies presented? Did he say that any of their points were factually incorrect? Did he present an alternative strategic approach to conquering the land? No. He merely said, We will go up and we will inherit the land because we can. Because we can. We don't need to know how, Caleb was saying. It's enough for us that Hashem said he's with us. We can do it. That was his tactical strategic advice. Now, later on in the Parsha, we received the mitzvah of tzitzit, a portion of the Torah so fundamental. You know tzitzit, the fringes that we wear on our garments? It's a portion of the Torah so fundamental that we say it morning and night as the third and final paragraph of the Shema prayer. And the Sfatimed points out a connection that I never saw between the spies and the tzitzit. And one of the reasons given for wearing the tzitzit, Hashem tells us, that you shall not stray after your hearts and after your eyes. That you should not be deceived by your eyes. We can't be deceived by our eyes. That we should not be deceived by the limitations that we perceive on a situation. That just because we may not see a way out here, that just because we may not see a solution, we should not be deceived by the limitations of our eyes. God is much greater than us. And it's at those times when we don't see a way, out, a way out that we must exercise our faith. In that moment, when the Israelites were struck, were stuck between the, the sea and the oncoming Egyptian army, they must have felt the same way. There's no way out. There's no imaginable way we could be saved right now. That's the time to turn your heart to God. That's the time to act in faith. That's the time to walk into the sea so deep that you drown. Then God will bring redemption. But he wants our hearts and he wants our faith and he wants our trust. To this very moment, he cherishes that day we followed him faithfully into an Eretz Lozru'ah, into an unsown desert. That is what Hashem loves. That's what he seeks from us. Perhaps Rabbi Sachs, what he teaches is also true, that the spies weren't really afraid of failure, but they were afraid of success. 
that they were holy men that cherished their time in the deserts, surrounded by this divine cocoon of God's protection, of being led by clouds during the day and a pillar of fire at night, that they wanted to continue being hand-fed the manna in the desert by God himself, that they were afraid of the challenges involved in entering the land and the agriculture and the military and the economy, the physical challenges, but also the challenge to faith. A challenge that we've discussed very much of, about thinking our victories are the victories of the strength of our own hands. But they were mistaken. They didn't understand the mission. Not only their mission, but the mission of the Jewish people. And our mission is not to stay in a heaven-like cocoon in the desert and disconnect from the world in an ashram somewhere. But our mission is to fully immerse ourselves in the physical world and to infuse it with godliness and spirituality. Our mission is not to go up to heaven, but to bring heaven down to earth. And how do we do that? Through faith, by following the will of Hashem with the courage of simple hearts. Hashem, we find ourselves surrounded by enemies that are seeking our destruction. Our government and our politics is confused and it's in shambles. Jews around the world are being attacked and are living in fear. We don't really know what to do. Give us the courage, Hashem, to put our faith in you, even if we don't see a way out of this difficult situation. Place within us simple hearts, hearts of flesh and hearts of faith, hearts that will follow your will, even if we may not have the eyes to see from our limited perspective and understanding how we will be saved. But we know that we will be because you are with us. Thank you, Hashem, and thank you, my friends in this fellowship, and thank you, Jeremy. Back to you. Thank you, Ari. Uh, that was absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, before we moved to the farm, Tehillah still taught at Hebrew University, and she was voted by the students in the law faculty as the second most popular teacher out of the entire staff in the department. And it's teachings like this that make her one of the greatest teachers in Israel today. And so here you go. Enjoy one of the greatest gifts of this fellowship, and that is Tehila Gimpel. Hey guys, so in this past week's Parsha, we get the commandment about tzitzit. Um, the, you know, tzitzit have this special color of tchelet, this special blue. See, I wore my blue head covering in honor of this. So uh, we, we have the commandment to wear the tzitzit and the tchelet blue. Now, it's not the only time that this color is mentioned in the Torah. It's mentioned 28 times throughout the Torah. Tchelet is mentioned once about tzitzit, but another 27 times about the colors in the tabernacle. So this is definitely the dominant color, not only on the fringes of a Jew's clothing, but also in the tabernacle. It's what the high priest wore. Uh, it was used on the curtains to embroider the curtains. The tchelet color was used on the curtain, uh, separating the Holy of Holies from everything else. And it was used as the cover of the Ark of the Covenant so that when Israel would travel in the desert, they would see this like billow of beautiful tchelet. Why is tchelet so important? So in this week's Parsha, we're told why. In chapter 15, verse 40, it says, So that you shall remember and perform all of my commandments, and you shall be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. <clears throat> it's kind of weird, right? How does a color remind you to do commandments? How does a color remind you of the Exodus? So I'm going to get back to that a little bit later. So now come back with me to imagine seeing the Israelite procession in the desert. So you have the high priest walking up ahead and you have this wave of Techelet blue on the ark 
right? Which people didn't normally see because it was always inside the tabernacle. And then you see, you know, the Jews walking behind with their tzitzit and their, you know, their blue tzitzit waving in the desert wind. What would that have looked like to like, you know, some Midianite uh, merchant passing by or some Edomite passing by? Here's a fun fact that might surprise you. What would you say if I told you that most ancient people didn't really see the color blue? I don't mean like physically in their eyeballs, they couldn't see blue, but they didn't really notice it or give it much thought. Like if they would have seen that procession that to me or you would have looked very unique and striking, they might not have even noticed that it was blue. How do we know this? So it started with William Gladstone, the famous four times prime minister of England in the late 19th century. Um, William Gladstone was a huge fan of Homer, the Greek epic uh, poet. He would read the Iliad and read the Odyssey again and again. And there was something that bothered him. The colors that Homer described were really weird. Like he would describe the sea as being the color of dark wine. Like I've seen the sea, it's not the color of dark wine and other strange descriptions. And that got Gladstone thinking about colors. So he started to reread the Odyssey and the Iliad and he started to notice the colors. So Homer was very thoughtful about black and white, mentions them about almost 200 times. Red gets a lot of attention, yellow and green are mentioned like 10 times each, but no blue, none at all. Even when Homer was talking about the sky or the sea, never. To the point that Gladstone actually thought that maybe Homer was colorblind, which was not true. Um, but following his observation, other uh, linguists started looking into this and they discovered that in fact, ancient languages didn't have the color blue. It's true for ancient Greek, but not only ancient Greek. It's true for ancient Indian, ancient Chinese. All of the super ancient languages didn't have a unique color for blue. Blue is sort of blobbed into the category of green somewhere. Now on the one hand, it's kind of shocking because blue is everywhere. Like you look up at the sky, it's blue. You look at the ocean, it's blue. Right? But it's not really so shocking when you think about how languages would develop, right? Like imagine you're a caveman and you're starting to try to develop words and language, right? What are the words that you most urgently need? Like you'll certainly need red, like, hey, you know, hey, buddy caveman, I'm bleeding. Come help me. I have this red stuff coming out of me, right? Or, you know, like, hey, there's you know, that orange tree over there. Let's go get those oranges. Do you want to help me pick them? But there's not much in nature that's blue. There's not many blue foods, not many blue plants, not, I don't, I don't know any blue animals, right? There are not many blue things you can make into tools. Yeah, there's the sky, but who cares? What are you going to do with the sky when you're trying to survive, right? If there's blood, you need to talk about the blood. If there's fruit, you need to talk about the fruit. So blue is really the least important color in nature if you need to communicate. And that's probably why blue developed latest in all languages um, in terms of the timing of having its own word. But here's where it gets really interesting. What was later discovered was that some ancient people did have a word for blue. And when did it start? It started in cultures that learned how to produce dye for fabric. As blue dyes started to spread, other cultures started to develop a sensitivity to the color blue. Cause it's like, hey, pass me my blue shirt. You need a word for that. But if you don't have a blue shirt, you don't need a word for blue. So here's what we know. Ancient people didn't have a word for blue until they started to make blue fabric. Blue fabric, blue dye was the trigger for people to begin to notice blue as a separate shade of its own. Does that mean people didn't see blue? No, it was just not important enough to get its own word and get its own category. It just kind of blobbed into other colors.
So, you know, I, we have this family uh, that lives nearby us. They have, Baruch Hashem, 13 kids. And they dress their kids every day in matching colors. And so once I came up to some of the girls and I was like, I love your orange dresses. You girls look so pretty. And they were like, it's not orange. Our dresses are coral. I'm sure ladies, you can understand this. Be like, oh, I love that eggplant shirt. And your husband's like, the purple one? It's like, no, eggplant, right? There's different levels of noticing differences between colors, right? You could just blob them into large categories. You could be really specific. So this was proven really nicely by a psychologist named Jules Davidoff. He went to this uh, remote tribe called Himba. They've been never exposed to modern culture. They live in Northern Namibia. And in their language, they don't have a word for blue. He wanted to see, do they just not notice blue? Like, do their eyes not see blue? Do they experience blue? So he took them these color swaths. And one of them had varying shades of green with one little square that was kind of like an aqua blue. And so like the computer made these little, you know, green squares and this aqua one. And they asked them, which one is a different category? And it took them forever to figure out. They didn't notice the difference. Like... The blue one just didn't stand out. To my eyes, it was like, hello, there's blue there. To them, it didn't stand out. Then they took all these different greens with just one as a slightly different shade of green. For me, it took a while to see which one was different. They invariably noticed it so fast. They're like, oh, well, that one's a different one. So it's not that they can't see blue, but they perceive blue as just a part of the category of green. Whereas within green, they have a lot of differentiations that to our eyes might not seem significant, like slightly lighter or slightly darker greens that would like be relevant for differentiating plants was much more noticeable to their eyes. Whereas the difference between one shade of green towards blue was not like a major categorical difference. So he said colors are really a lot about what you, what you notice, what's relevant for you, how you categorize things. So some cultures will make a lot of distinctions between colors and some will say like, okay, that's like the general kind of green category. Um, so among ancient people, there was no category for blue and that was until there was blue dye. So now interestingly in Egypt, there was blue dye. Egyptians were one of the first people to have a word for blue, but throughout Canaan, Assyria, the Greeks, no blue. So the Jews are leaving Egypt, a place where they had a word for blue towards a place where there, nobody is going to know about blue. Now there's a passage in the Talmud that always seemed kind of peculiar to me. In Tractate Menachot, Rabbi Meir says, what makes the Tachelet color different from all other colors? To me, that's like, um, hello, it's kind of obvious, right? But he says, what makes it different? He says, the Tachelet is similar to the sea. The sea is similar to the heavens. The heavens are similar to the throne of glory, as it is written, and beneath his feet was like the forming of a sapphire brick, the appearance of the heavens for clarity from Exodus 24. So I always thought this was like, I guess, being poetic to describe how beautiful the Tachelet is, but in light of the discoveries, you know, in recent years that the ancient peoples didn't recognize blue easily, he's not just being poetic, he's explaining what the color is. How is this different from other colors? He's trying to help people. He says, you want to understand what tchelet is? Okay, look at the sky, look at the sea, look at a sapphire stone. Those are essentially the only things in nature that would be defined as blue. And he's saying this is a different color. It's a different category. Now, interestingly, there was still some confusion about this. In the Jerusalem Talmud, it says... Tchelet is like the sea. Catch this. Tchelet is like the sea. The sea looks like the grass, and the grass looks like the heavens. And the heavens are like the throne of glory. I mean, I've seen grass and I've seen the sky. They don't look the same to me. 
And so that interpretation was rejected in favor of Rabbi Meir's interpretation that it looks like the sky and the sea and, you know, and the sapphire stone. So it's like even within the Jewish tradition, there was confusion as to what is this color, like how blue or how green is it? So now let's go back and understand tzitzit a little bit better. If blue dye is what allows us to remember that blue is, recognize blue as a separate category, why does it matter, right? Why is it important for us to have this separate category? Why do we need to wear it? Why do we need to put it in the tabernacle, right? And let's go back to our original question. Why would looking at Tehillet make you remember keeping the commandments and make you remember the Exodus? Okay, so I think now it's starting to make sense. Tehillet reminds us of looking up at the sky and of seeing the throne of Hashem. When did we see that? When we received the commandments at Har Sinai. That's, right, when the Torah tells us that, that the throne of Hashem looked like the sapphire stone. So this reminds us of receiving the commandments. The actual color was part of the experience. And why is it related to leaving Egypt? Why does, it, why does, why does Hashem say that seeing blue will remind us of leaving Egypt? Well, it says, as Rabbi Meir says, Tehillet is similar to the sea. Imagine Israel walking through the Red Sea as it splits. What do they see? Water on both sides. They look up, they see the blue sky, the blue water. They're enveloped in the color of Tehillet. So we have these moments in our, natural, in our national history, these moments, the splitting of the sea, the moment of receiving the Torah at Sinai, these moments when nature stopped being nature and Hashem revealed himself in the world beyond the natural order of things. He was like, hey, I'm Hashem. I'm here in the world with you. Right? Like, and those moments happen to us in our lives too, don't they? Those moments where you see that like things don't just work in nature. Hashem comes and makes you feel like he's taking care of you, he has providence over you. How do you capture those moments? Aren't they so easy to forget? Isn't it so easy to just like, even after you have these transcendent moments in your life, to just slip back into the regular, into the regular of everything, right? So, you know, so, is, so Hashem is saying, you're going to go to a place where you're going to forget about this. You're going to go to a place where people only live in nature. They don't have a color of blue. You're going to go to Canaan. They think about survival, power, violence. They need red. They need black. They need green. They don't have blue. How are you going to remember that Hashem transcends nature, that you can connect with him? How do you pass on that memory? You create a Tehillet moment. You create a Tehillet experience. You see your tzitzit. You see the high priest in his blue, you see the tabernacle covered in Tehillet and you get this wave of memory, right? It's like a memory that's deeper than your own memories. It's your ancestors' memories. It brings you back to this category of experiences that's where we're able to go beyond the natural world and say, don't forget, there's something beyond, there's something that transcends. And when I realized this, it helped me unravel another mystery that's been bothering me for a long time. The whole oral tradition begins in the Mishnah of Tractate Brachot. Now, if I was starting to pass down the oral tradition, what would I start with? (coughs) I would start with something about maybe spirituality, the most important things in life, what should you strive for? But the oral tradition starts with what time you can say the Shema, right? Seems a little technical, right? And then the way that they describe, the way that the Mishnah describes the time is even stranger. It says, from when can you read the Shema in the morning? You would think it would say maybe from sunrise or from this many hours. It says, from the time you can distinguish Tehillet from white. And Rabbi Eliezer, he differs and he says, from the time you can differentiate blue from green. This is so strange, right? Why don't you just tell us what time? What is 
the ability to say the Shema prayer have anything to do with colors and being having enough light to differentiate between these colors and why these colors in particular. So to see tchelet and be able to differentiate it from white is like picking up your tzitzit and noticing the tchelet, noticing the blue. It's like our sages are telling us, you want to accept Hashem into your life? You want to say the Shema? Right? You need to be able to see tchelet and what all of tchelet symbolizes. It symbolizes these memories of a world that's not just nature, but a world where Hashem is in control, where Hashem is the, the you know, is, is, is something it, we can connect with Hashem despite, you know, beyond the natural order of things. You need to be able to see blue. And Rabbi Eliezer says, no, you have to be even more precise. It's not just about seeing the blue. It's about being able to separate the blue and the green. Remember those tribes that couldn't differentiate between blue and green? Don't be like that. You want to be a person of Hashem? You want to live under Hashem and say the Shema? You need to know that there is green, which symbolizes the laws of nature, and the, you know, there's blue, like when, when you meet environmentalists, what are they called? Green party, the green piece, right? Green is the color of this world. Can you tell the difference? Do you know that there's something that's beyond? Do you remember that there were those, that there was the Exodus? Do you remember that Hashem came into the world and gave us the commandments? We're not just slaves to our nature. We serve Hashem. We serve Hashem that is beyond nature. And so, the Tchelet has this unbelievable ability to awaken that within us. And it's not just for the memory of the past. My friend Tommy Waller, when I shared this idea with him, he brought my attention to, Z to Zechariah in the end of chapter 8. And it says that in those days, 10 men of all of the languages of the nations shall take hold of the fringe of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you. We have heard that Hashem is with you. It could have said that 10 men will grab the hand of a Jew or, you know, put their arm around the shoulder of a Jew. What do they grab onto in the end of the days? They grab onto the corner of the tzitzit where the tchelet is. They're going to hold onto the tchelet and say to the people who understand what tchelet is, say, what is the meaning of this? And it'll be the mission to spread this idea to the world, the understanding and the memory of the transcendence beyond nature to the deeper meanings revealed to us at Exodus and at Mount Sinai. So with that, I wish you a beautiful, techelet-filled, transcendence-filled week. Thank you so much, Tehillah. Beautiful. And, you know, just think about the people of Israel are coming into the land and there's a blue high priest and a blue tabernacle and this blue wave of people. They're like never seen blue. They don't have a word for blue. And it's like there's something out of this world that is coming into the land now. And I just love how you brought the science of the tribes and connect all the dots. And, um, you know, we're over time now. And this is my last thought for the day. See, see, you know, it's to remind us it's blue like the sky. And, you know, the, the spies, they fell into despair because the odds were against them, stacked against them. In the natural world, we could not conquer the land. There were giants, fortified cities. There was just no way. You look at Israel today, we're 6 million Jews surrounded by a billion Muslims that would really rather us uh, be swimming in the sea than living on the land of Israel. And there are thousands of rockets pointed at Israel at any moment. We are a living miracle. Every second we're alive in this land is a living testimony. It's a miracle of God. And in the natural world, we don't stand a chance. And it's like, guys, look at the tzitzit. Look at the tzitzit and keep your head up. Keep your eyes toward the sky. In this world, with God on our side, anything is possible. For every person that ever loses faith, as long as Israel continues to grow, continues to flourish, and the desert continues to be restored, continues to get stronger, you can be sure that God is running the world because in the natural world, 
we shouldn't last in this neighborhood for more than a few minutes. And so what are you supposed to think about when you see your tzitzit? You're supposed to remember to keep your head up. The sky knows no boundaries. And whatever challenge we face, we can face it together. And with Hashem on our side, we can do it. And so friends, know that you are blessed from the land of Israel and blessed from Yehuda. Thank you for joining us today. Shalom, my friends. We'll see you soon. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.